Hey everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Reagan Canope. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. When I first came to Oregon in 1984, people were much more willing to talk to me, much freer. You know, they weren't going off the record at every instance. And what was also striking was the relative lack of partisanship. Now, even to this day, there is something about local news that when they cover something, average Oregonians, average people know more about it. All right, folks, today we have an interview with an Oregon legend, someone whose name I'm almost certain our listeners all know, Jeff Mapes. Jeff Mapes is a veteran Oregon political reporter. If you've been paying attention to Oregon politics at all in the last 30 years, <laughs> you've certainly read his stuff. He recently retired from OPB. He was at OPB since 2015, I believe, or 2016. But prior to that, he worked for the Oregonian. He was a political reporter at the Oregonian for 32 years. He's covered numerous presidential, congressional, gubernatorial, and ballot measure campaigns and many, many sessions of the Oregon State Legislature, some of which we talk about in this episode. He's also the author of a 2009 book, Peddling Revolution, How Cyclists Are Changing American Cities. But in this podcast, we focused actually just on a couple topics and spent a lot of time digging in. The one that I was most interested in and really enjoyed talking to him about was the 1990 gubernatorial election in Oregon. This was the year Barbara Roberts became governor, defeating Dave Fronmeyer and third-party candidate Al Mobley. Absolutely fascinating election. It was also the year of ballot measure five passing, massively impactful ballot measure, which we cover in this episode. And as Jeff discusses the beginning of the Spotted Owl conversation of which we have discussed on this podcast multiple times. Reagan, and we also talk about land use, quick plug. We talk about his, Jeff Mapes did a podcast for OPB on land use called Growing Oregon, which we'll link to in the bio that you all should listen to if you haven't. It is very useful information, particularly in light of big conversations happening in Oregon politics. Okay, all that said, Reagan Canope, your thoughts on our conversation with Jeff Mapes. Well, Ben, first, it's good to see you again. Missed being able to do a podcast with you. I was building a chicken coop and then I was going to say gone for something less cool than that. Let's actually get this on the record. You called me minutes before a scheduled podcast was supposed to occur, telling me you had to build a chicken coop. How is that a thing? So here's the story, Ben. I ordered a chicken <laughs> coop because we had nine chicks and they were... We had them in a bin, as you see them in the stores, if you go to like a coastal farm and ranch like I did here in Albany, Wilco, great companies, and they have the chicks. And so you buy them. And so I set up the same setup. The thing they probably said that I didn't listen to was they grow very fast. And so I was continually looking around for chicken coops. Everyone bought chicken coops when they bought their chicks because they're smart, Ben. And as our listeners may not quite understand, I'm terrible at planning sometimes. And so I'd ordered a chicken coop and it was supposed to arrive after we recorded the podcast. It was usually our deliveries were late afternoon. It came like minutes before our podcast was scheduled to start. And then the rain was pouring and we had a quick break. And so I was, I knew if I had not built it that time, it was unlikely I was going to get it built in time. And we had just had an issue with the current situation. So the chicks needed to go somewhere besides sit in a tiny box. And so I had to build this and I got it done right before the rain started, Ben. Isn't the exciting part of the story that something caught on fire? 
I didn't really want to talk about my irresponsible farming, Ben, but yes, there was an issue. All the chicks are safe, but their their current home, I don't know if you know this, the foundation, you can put down hay or straw or pellets for the chickens on, and then you got to change that every so often. But if you have a light set up to keep the chicks warm and it falls in there, it just starts to smolder that stuff. And so the chicks were all huddled in one corner very far away and all 100% safe. Totally safe. Um, maybe some secondhand smoke insulation, which we're going to have <laughs> checked out, but they're okay. But I needed to get them transitioned. And so it was more of an emergency than I was planning for. I appreciate you filling in. But Ben, back to this episode, which is I'm back sure what Mapes. listeners actually turned into. So we've <laughs> had a handful of podcasts that are dealing with the history of Oregon politics. We're kind of diving mm -hmm. into these historical issues. We've had Jim Moore talk about Vicatia. We've had um, Brent Walsh and Tom McCall. We, yes, uh, Brent Walsh and Tom McCall. We had Nigel Jacobs talk about Neil Goldschmidt. We've had Greg Walden. And so Jeff Mapes really fits in kind of that early 90s where we've kind of touched on that era of Oregon politics, but we didn't get deep into it. And so we get deep into it here with Jeff. He's got a, a fantastic historical knowledge about it. And he had a really good sense of what the environment was like at that time. And he just describes it in a way you don't get from reading books or Wikipedia or anything yes. like that. And so um, that's one of the things that is great about Jeff. And he's good in audio format as he is in written. It is one of those, he is just extremely skilled. And also I think I told him this after the podcast, I don't think we got it on recording very fair journalist from my perspective. It may not have felt like that when he was covering the Republican <laughs> majorities of the 90s. I don't know how they felt about him, but certainly the years that I dealt with him as he kind of like wrapped up his career in day-to-day -day journalism in 2020, that was kind of those four years preceding that is where I really did a lot that dealt with the media. And I love dealing with Jeff. He was extremely professional and easy to work with and wrote, I think, very fair coverage of Oregon politics. Just as like a, a little bit of, of context of our sort of the method to our madness here, what we're trying to build, there's not really a good, if you're a young person working in Oregon politics, like if you're like an intern in the legislature or a young staffer, there's not really a place where you can learn about why the 1990 election matters or what exactly happened with the Neil Goldschmidt thing and what was the fallout and how did that impact. So what we're trying to do here is like bridge an information gap. Like I told, I, great pun, Ben, because our podcast is called the Oregon, the Oregon Bridge. Bridge. Well, I didn't even notice that, but I think it was an awesome use of words on my part. But there's like I was telling Jeff this story before we started recording. I've talked to some interns in the state capitol and even some staffers, and they didn't know who Neil Goldschmidt was, let alone why his story, his narrative in Oregon politics and outside of Oregon politics is incredibly impactful and still matters in the way that we conduct business in this state. And I think even more true in this conversation about the 1990 election and measure five and the spotted owl, like we're trying to catch people up, particularly younger folks. But I think older listeners end up enjoying these conversations as much or more because some of them were actually there for these conversations and remember them. So that's what we're trying to do with these historical episodes. We've been getting some good feedback, but if you've got other ideas or other folks you think we should talk to, we are more than, more than open to your suggestions and moving forward. Ben, you're a great planner. I really appreciate that about you. It helps make the podcast possible. If you were like me, this would be a disaster. So we're glad you're not. And I'm glad that you have a plan, Ben, to help inform everybody. And I agree with your plan. 
my strategy has been invite people that I would love to talk to on the podcast. And so that's how I get the guests that I do. And Jeff, I want to put in this in my column. I got Jeff uh, to agree to come on the podcast. And I don't think we ruined his afternoon on the Friday too badly. So (laughs) hopefully listeners enjoy this one as another one of our series, which we should probably title and repackage at some point. We were better at marketing, but um, I hope everyone (laughs) enjoys this. Thanks, everyone. Harang Long PC has always recognized that achieving our clients' goals sometimes requires a change in the law. And in other situations, clients need help stopping or changing proposed amendments to the law that put their interests at risk. For decades, we have played a role in shaping Oregon law on many subjects, from narrow regulations to major policy changes implicating billions of dollars. Our lawyers work with clients to draft legislation, prepare legal opinions and testimony to share with legislators, coordinate with professional lobbyists, and work directly with policymakers. To learn more about Harang Long's policy and politics practice, go to harang.com. That's H-A-R-R-A-N-G.com. All right, Jeff Mapes, welcome to the podcast. Hey, great to be with you too. Well, we have been looking forward to talking to you for quite a while now. We're especially excited to talk about the 1990 election and why it was so influential in Oregon history. But before we get to that, how did you end up as a career reporter on Oregon politics? What's the sort of origin story of Jeff Mapes's career? Well, you know, that actually is pretty funny because I grew up in California and as a an aspiring journalist, I actually, I think I wanted to be a debonair city columnist in San Francisco, you know, living up <laughs> on Bob Hill in a swank <laughs> apartment, you know, lots of great parties and uh, that sort of thing. And somehow that really actually wasn't me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I did start my career in California at the Napa Register, the Napa Valley, a pretty good place to pay your dues. And I ended up working for the newspaper chain that owned the Napa Register in uh, Washington, D.C. And I was very excited to go there. I've always been interested in politics and national politics to be there, you know, in the center of it all, even if I was at a no-account newspaper chain for the most part, that, you know, their their newspapers had trouble covering City Hall, let alone Congress or the White <laughs> House, or the Pentagon. But I got to cover all that and try all that out. It was a great experience. My wife and I always did feel like we wanted to come back west. We thought we'd come back to California. Newspaper jobs at the time in the early 80s were hard to get. All the afternoon newspapers were going out of business, and they were really tough. And I managed to get a job at the Portland Oregonian, and that was the West Coast. And bang, I landed here in 1984. Not in the middle, but still in a pretty tough recession. I came here and I thought boy, what did I do leaving Washington, D.C.? This job doesn't work. There's not much else out there. Before we move forward, I think I should full disclosure at this point. As a proud Hazelbrook Hawk alumni, I am relatively certain that your wife was my middle school math teacher. (laughs) I'm relatively certain you're correct. (laughs) Pleased to hear that. Yes, please tell her. She was actually the best math teacher. I, I have always been really bad at math and she did a good job of never making me feel that way. So tell her thank you. She'd be happy to hear that. <laughs> she um, pleased to know that she went on to teach community college math with the same curriculum 
that no kids, kidding. yeah, I mean, basically they're taking it because they didn't learn it the first time around and they need yeah. it. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yes. And and so before we were recording, we were chatting about this, but so you spent most of your career at the Oregonian. You then went to OPB for a few years. Are you like fully, fully retired now or what, where, what are you up to these retired. days? Yeah, it doesn't feel okay. like it because I've had the full-time job of the last couple months of moving. We've downsized, so. I don't recommend that for the faint of heart. <laughs> but you're going to get a lot more freedom, I think, ultimately out of yeah. that. It's yeah, going to position still, you well. I'll, I'll still do some things. I spoke at a conference this week about land use policy, which was my last big series at OPB. I did a podcast series on Oregon's land use system. And we're going to talk about that. But first, we're going to go in the Wayback Machine and talk about Oregon politics in the 80s and the 90s. So I want to talk about kind of as you're starting in journalism, what you, this is going to be the worst phrase question ever. So just do with it, whatever you will tell the stories you want to tell, because those are going to be more interesting than this question that I'm going to ask. So the eighties and nineties, you're, you're starting as an up and coming journalist, but you start to become, you know, obviously more and more understanding of the political environment in Oregon. Talk about what changed in, let's start with the political environment. What was the political environment like in Oregon in the eighties and did it change going into the nineties? Well, you know, my perspective was I came here from covering Congress and the rest of Washington, D.C. And when I first came to Oregon in 1984, I felt like a kid in a candy store. People were much more willing to talk to me, much freer. You know, they weren't going off the record at every instance. And what was also striking was the relative lack of partisanship. Now, there were a lot of sharp elbows then, but at the same time, there was an overlapping group of legislators. I mean, there were several Democratic legislators that were more conservative than some of the more moderate or liberal Republicans. I mean, there was a real overlap there. Some I remember Mary Burroughs, there's a voice way out of the past. She was a Republican legislator from Eugene in the uh, 80s, maybe up into the 90s. And she, I remember when I'd only been in the state a few months, I remember her talking to me and saying, you know, we really don't have big partisan differences in Oregon. I mean, we work together. Not quite the case. I mean, you had people who went all the way from, you know, being democratic socialists, you know, on the far left of the democratic side to Republicans who were open supporters of the apartheid regime in South Africa as an example. Okay. Wow. Well, and I think to kind of go off that, I mean, I've heard plenty of stories from that era because that's the era that my dad kind of started in politics in Oregon. And to me, the arguments are all the same, but you didn't have clearly, clearly drawn battle lines, as you were saying, between the parties. It was either the same oppositional forces, pro versus anti-tax, you know, in the land use battles, in the budget battles, what have you. Same battle lines, but they had a more, more, there was more of a mixture of the parties. Betsy Johnson and Newt Bueller weren't as big of exceptions as they are today or that they were today. Right. And, and part of it was that the geographical boundaries were more scrambled. I mean, there were Democratic mm. legislators in rural Oregon mm -hmm. and Republican legislators literally in the city of Portland even. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the West Hills, for example, you know, that more upscale part of Portland would often vote Republican. Mm -hmm. Lake Oswego was a Republican. was sort of the epitome of Republicanism then. It was, I almost thought of the heart of it when I came to Oregon. And, but at the same time, 
the legislature was just sort of ending a long tradition of very powerful Democratic legislators from small town Oregon, you know, Jason Bow. Yep. Uh, Southern uh, Oregon coast. Right. And and then, of course, John Kitzhaber, remember, he was originally from Roseburg. Roseburg, so yeah. He came um, in in many ways with a moderate outlook and certainly knew how to how to speak to Republicans. And so you saw that quite a bit. So was the gentleman's name Bob Jensen, who was mm-hmm. he served forever in the legislature, originally elected as a Democrat? And then I think the official shift of like the end of rural legislative Democrats happened and he changes parties, gets reelected as a Republican. And now, like, I think there are still some rural Democrats, but it's not the same kind of rural that there was back when, you know, Kitzhaber was representing a big Douglas County district. Right. And it's much harder for Republicans to get elected in suburban areas now. You know, I'm trying to think that really kind of the last Republican legislator that I can think of in the city of Portland and his district might have shift are also been partially in unincorporated East County then, but Gene Saylor, I remember the the Saylor's country kitchen restaurant and, um, and he finally was defeated, I think in the early nineties, but that seat had occasionally been Republican. And oftentimes East Multnomah County was represented by Republican legislators are very conservative Democrats who Mm -hmm. had similar philosophies. There was even a guy in the early 90s who he was a little bit of an accidental legislator. He got in, I think, after the death of Bill McCoy, but he represented North Portland and was a Democrat, but very conservative. Hmm. And but, you know, and of course, for many years, the Democrats had May Yee from Albany and Mike Thorne from Pendleton in the Senate, and they often were the swing votes, and so their caucus had to listen to them. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, Mike Thorne, John Kitzhaber made him Ways and Means chair because he liked having a conservative who would say no to people, and that so people would come to Kitzhaber and say, "I really want funding for this," and Kitzhaber would say, "I agree with you, but Mike, he just won't <laughs> that's kind of like the Peter Courtney Betsy Johnson dynamic a little bit." Yeah, yeah, it's a a good excuse. You know, there's an old saw that the governors would always rather have work with a party, a legislature controlled by the other party. It's probably more used to be this way than now, because then they could blame, you know, they wouldn't have to do stuff they thought was too far out. Mm-hmm. You know, they could always say, hey, the legislature wouldn't let me do this. And I think there's probably still some chief executives who feel that way. That's a great transition, actually, to my next question. So I'm looking at I made I went back. This was years ago. And I went back and I went through the Secretary of State's website. All this stuff has been moved to archive since but they had a list of every legislature and the breakdown by partisanship. So I'd go in and count and then I put it in a spreadsheet. And so I'm looking at my spreadsheet now. And I used to have this downloaded on my website, but I don't have it up. So I'll try to put it back on there. So the switch happens. So 1973 is the first year. And I'm looking at the House because the House tracks much closer with the shifts. The Senate takes longer to catch up, Mm -hmm. partly because of those established folks who cross parties or had different values. The House catches up quicker to those changes. So 1973 is the first year Democrats have a majority that is sustained for a period of time. And they fluctuate between 33 and 38 seats all the way up until 1990, the election in 1990, and that legislature switches for the first time in basically two decades to Republican. And so, Jeff, I think you're there at this time. 
and all throughout the tenure of the Republican-led legislature, it fluctuates a little bit more in the Senate, but the House is kind of leading. What's the dynamic between the Republican-led legislature and the various Democratic governors that come through and the various Republican speakers, really, that flow through? Because there's a, quite a few of them, actually. Right. Well, it was a big change because it it signaled, for one thing, a changing Republican Party. I mean, Larry Campbell was a very power, a strong determined minority leader through the 80s, you know, he pushed for several years. And in fact, at one point, he reached an alliance with the Oregon Education Association to get a big chunk of funding for his candidates. And he was one person who played a big role in making legislative campaigns more expensive. You know, he brought a lot of money to Oregon uh, legislative politics. And yeah, I mean, things very much changed in the 90s because Republicans were reflecting, you know, Reagan Republicanism, which was uh, more conservative than politics before. And, and also social issues started to become big. And those really hadn't been in Oregon politics so much. They uh, anti-abortion forces just did not have the same kind of sway, even with the Republican Party that they do now. And, you know, the a big thing that happened was in 1986, a group called the Oregon Citizens Alliance or came at, was created out of the 1986 campaign when a Baptist minister named Joe Lutz ran against Bob Packwood. I mean, it's almost unbelievable today to think of a Republican senator who would be the leader of the abortion rights movement in the country, you know, at least mm -hmm. in Congress. I mean, that's just stunning to think of. And Packwood did it for you know, a couple decades. That is a perfect transition to, I think, what we want to spend some time on, which is the 1990 Oregon gubernatorial election. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, there's one thing before, and I'm sorry for the diversion here, but I really no. want to get in because there's one thing that changed in Oregon politics that you won't get from looking at the Blue Book. And I think from a media perspective, I can give you guys something useful. The first session I covered, first regular session, was in 1985, and at that session, every local TV station in Portland had a reporter and a camera person, mm -hmm. sometimes even a sound person, in Salem every day of the session. Now wow. imagine that. And usually there were one or two Eugene stations up at the time. Medford TV had a pretty regular, at least one of the stations down there had a pretty regular presence and others would drop in. But the fact that you had four Portland TV stations down there every day competing and, and they all had a statewide reach, you know, to some extent, you can get the Portland's or at the time, people at least who had cable, you know, you'd be available all over Eastern Oregon. Even to this day, there is something about local news that when they cover something, average Oregonians, average people know more about it. You know, a lot of people just don't read the newspaper. A lot of people maybe read the newspaper, but I'm talking in the past because who reads newspapers anymore? But even back in the 1980s, maybe they were reading the sports pages or national news. But local news, if they're doing two or three or four minutes a day on the legislature, that kind of seeps in. They're watching it while they're, you know, making dinner or, you know, cleaning house or whatever. And I think the legislature, the average Oregonian felt much more in tune with the legislature in those days. And in the early 90s, that gradually fell away. And now you hardly ever have 
local TV coverage of the legislature. And that's, in a way, one of the biggest changes I've seen, certainly in what kind of news people get from the legislature in, in my time in politics here. No, that's a really good point. And we've talked about the Columbia Journalism Review piece about, I think it's called Oregon's <clears throat> Dwindling State House Reporters Are, quote, Treading Water. And it's got this bar graph that talks about how many members there were of the Capitol Press Corps. And in 1995, for example, there were 33. In 2001, there were 37. And the last year they have data for is 13 in 2018, which is the lowest on record. And that has a ton of implications for both, I think, what actually happens in politics and for what consumer or voter perception of politics is. On the one hand, if you have fewer reporters around and fewer TV cameras around, there's less accountability for your actions. You can get away with things that people will never know about. And on the other hand, I think most people, when they hear about something going on in Oregon politics, it's because things have gone sideways. The only things yeah. that make the news are when there's a scandal or a failure of some kind. And to be honest, a lot of time TV was just caught following print coverage, but they amplified it. You know, if something it was one thing to have even the Oregonian writing about a story and politicians could kind of know, oh, you know, that's who's reading those stories. But once it was on TV and they're, you know, sort of awkwardly trying to answer a question with a microphone shoved in their face, that's a whole different thing. Totally. And you know um, what killed it? was Nielsen started doing, I think, it was either story-by-story story ratings or every, you know, what your viewership was minute-by-minute minute or every three mm. minutes. And so all of a sudden, stations could really see what was getting good viewership, what people were, you know, where they might be clicking off and stuff. And that's when they decided that legislative coverage didn't make the cut. It didn't attract the audience that other things did. As soon as Mark Haas started reporting on the Ways and Means Committee, everyone turned the channel. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> I'm being more Dang. diplomatic than that. But <laughs> yeah. And, okay. and I think that's a shame, but there you go. So let's talk about 1990. Let's talk about what may be the most influential, impactful, I should say, election in modern Oregon history. And we can talk about that. So set the stage for us a little bit. There's There ends up being four candidates on the ballot. But who the candidates are matters a lot. So can you walk us through who is the Democratic nominee and how did she become the nominee? And then who was the Republican nominee and how did he become the Republican nominee? And then we can kind of kind of go from there. Right. Yeah. I mean, at first for, you know, through 1989, I would have told you that the candidates were going to be Dave Frommeyer, the Republican attorney general, trying to ask Neil Goldschmidt, who was the governor and seemed to be running for re-election and was, I think, in a pretty strong position. His four years in office hadn't been as successful as he would have liked, I don't think, but I, you know, he still had a lot of political pluses going for him. And then shockingly, and I want to say January of that year of 1990, which is usually long after the fields are totally. very finalized, he announces that he's getting divorced and not running for re-election. Now, we didn't know the full extent of what was going on with Neil Goldschmidt. But at this point, the Democrats are scrambling. And Dave Frommeyer looks to be in a very strong position at this point. And Barbara Roberts, pretty much, she did clear the, the Democratic field very quickly. But, you know, she starts out with no money. I remember asking her, well, would you describe yourself as a liberal? 
and she didn't shy away from that. She said yes, and that was considered, you know, mildly shocking in Oregon politics at the time. And I remember some pe people opining that, you know, she was painting herself too far to the left. But then it quickly became clear that Dave Frommeyer had a real problem on the right because he was very strongly pro-choice on abortion. Mm -hmm. And I think he and his wife even attended a Planned Parenthood fundraiser, oh, which wow. is something that you wouldn't expect a uh, Republican office holder to do these days. And in the Oregon Citizens Alliance basically said, you know, they threatened him. They told if you don't back off from abortion, I think they had several demands related to that. We're going to run our own candidate, and they did a, a guy and named. The, so the Oregon Citizens Alliance doesn't exist anymore, but for the younger generations of Oregon politicos, they were a pretty powerful force, I imagine, back in the day. What was OCA, and why were they important here? Yeah, as I said, they were formed out of this senatorial primary campaign that this Baptist minister Joe Lutz ran, and it was really sort of a local version of you know the Moral Majority, the Christian Coalition, you know those groups that had really taken root in the 70s and 80s and were becoming more of a force in national politics. You know, Pat Robertson ran mm -hmm. for president in 1988, I believe it was. And so this was a group that was formed in Klamath Falls, a very conservative area. A guy named Lon Maybon was really kind of the force behind it. And they, they won a ballot measure uh, or they put a measure on the ballot while Goldschmidt was still governor to... Uh, I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but basically prohibit state government from any sort of executive actions that would provide, you know, equal rights based on sexual identification. And as I recall, and that ballot measure won, as a matter of fact, and that sort of rocket fueled the movement. And so they ran a candidate named Al Mobley in the 1990 election, who quickly staked out you know, this territory on the right side of the spectrum. I mean, not just on abortion or gay rights, but also on the idea that, you know, government is wasteful. It does way too much, you know, very traditional conservative themes. And starting at that point, you could see Dave Frommeyer start to have a little bit of a deer in the headlights look, because every time he came out for something, he had to be looking not only to his left, but more worrisome to him to the right. And Barbara Roberts, it turned out, calling herself a liberal was just fine because all of a sudden she didn't need 50% of the vote. She needed, what did she get, 45% of the vote? She got 45.7. Like yeah. I think this is really important to underscore for listeners because our closest reference point to the 1990 election is actually the 2022 election, right. where we had. Governor Tina Kotek, progressive Democrat. I, she might use the term liberal like Barbara Roberts did. Christine Drazen, who I think is a conservative Republican, probably, I don't know, like maybe somewhere between Al Mobley and Dave Frohnmeyer on the political spectrum. But then Betsy Johnson, importantly, is between those two on the political spectrum. So she was trying, at least in her campaign strategy, to draw from both parties and be this alternative. Al Mobley is drawing exclusively every vote he gets is someone who otherwise would have voted for Dave Frohnmeyer or perhaps the Libertarian. Third well, Party. Barbara Roberts has frequently argued since then. Oh, no, no, no. Some of my voters I lost to, you know, they were rural Democrats, but they just liked his tough rhetoric and all that. But 
two things. Once again, sure, I in a two-way race, she probably would have received more votes, but I think it cost Frommeyer more votes. And more importantly, it made him hesitant and more fearful of, you know, letting himself campaign more freely than he would have otherwise. Mm-hmm. So Johnson maxed out at under 9%. She got 8.6 and Mobley got 13%, which tells you that he obviously had a pretty active set of voters that were supporting him, which, which and, really and that, does lend. Yeah. And isn't that true? Don't you think that if you have a, mm-hmm. somebody with a very staunch political belief, I mean, they're going to pick up a nice chunk of the electorate, you know, look at 2000 with Ralph Nader, mm-hmm. which I think everybody knew was a close presidential race, but still, what did he get nationally enough? And certainly in some states like Florida to push the election away from Al Gore. I mean, they're just, it wasn't 13%. It was, you know, three or something like that, three or four, but it makes a difference. It was why the presidential race was so close in Oregon, you know, Gore barely hung on to win in that seat. And when you're in the middle, as Betsy Johnson was, your followers tend to not, not to be as fervent. And when they see that you're not going to make it, they'll peel off to their number two choice. So I want to talk after this about, so, you know, yeah, spoiler alert, Barbara Roberts wins. She gets about 45.7% of the vote. Fronmeyer gets 40% of the vote. 13% 13% goes to Mobley, and then 1.3% goes to the Libertarian candidate. So, so she wins. We'll talk in a moment about what her four years in the governor's office was like and why it was a really challenging time to be governor of Oregon. What was the 1990 election about? What were voters talking about? What did they care about? What were the topics? Yeah, well, that's the thing is why I think that 90 was such a formative year in Oregon politics, sort of the fulcrum that changed everything. And that's, I mean, there were two other huge statewide issues. And one, Measure 5 was on the ballot, the property tax limitation. Mm-hmm. And property tax limitations have been on almost every general election ballot since 1978, you know, when Prop 13 passed in California, sort of set it off this whole property tax revolt. And it had always been defeated in Oregon pretty closely. Well, in 1990, it passed. And so a lot of people said Barbara Roberts did not get elected governor that year. Measure five got elected governor, you know, Mm -hmm. because that quickly, I mean, it changed the whole financial picture. And that, let's face it, you know, even with all the the other stuff the legislature does, the budget is still number one. Mm -hmm. And the big thing, of course, is it shifted school funding where a majority of school funding came from property taxes to a system where the majority came from state income taxes. And that was just a huge sea change in how Oregon worked. I mean, school districts, they needed to lobby the legislature much harder than before. It was all dependent on that. And then you had this other big dynamic going on where school districts like, say, Portland, that have been very well funded when property taxes were the majority of support, all of a sudden, everybody had to have equal funding. So their money was getting shifted to other districts. I mean, a district like Grants Pass, they had more money than they'd ever had before. And so, you know, the tide was rising for them. And But it was a very difficult transition for many well-funded school districts. And, and that really exacerbated tensions, to put it mildly, and affected, you know, that's when we started seeing a big drop-off in 
state support for higher ed, for example. You know, mm-hmm. and then the other gigantic issue was the spotted owl because uh-huh. that was listed in 1989. And it was a real big issue in the election. Dave Frommeyer and Mobley, I mean, they basically took the side of the timber industry and said, you know, we need to fight this, you know, and get the federal government to back off on this in some fashion. And Barbara Roberts famously said, we need to play the cards we're dealt. We need to go to, you know, recognize a new reality where logging on federal lands is going to be more limited, more environmentally sensitive. And so you can imagine how that shook the state up. And one of the impacts of that is I think it was one thing that helped the Republicans take over the House because it became very hard for Democrats to win rural seats. You know, there was a Democrat, I believe it was Tom Troop, who was still the state House rep from Bend. And he was just toast after the Spotted Owl, if I'm remembering my history right, after the Spotted Owl decision came out and the Democrats were seen as supporting the, you know, basically being on the environmental side on that issue. And so <laughs> there was a lot going on, but as it didn't mean that Barbara Roberts didn't win the election, of course. So, so uh, she wins. And I've heard some story about this, but basically like she wins which is amazing. She makes history. She's the first woman in the history of Oregon to be elected governor. Um, You would think this is this gigantic celebratory achievement. She also has an incredible story in Oregon politics. We should do a a Barbara Roberts podcast at some point, but like she's talked to her recently. She's doing well. And who knows, maybe she talked to you guys. Yeah, we should ask her. But so she started as like a, she was like a single mom who was like advocating for her, her child with special needs because it was before there were sort of protections and and legal rights for those students. And she just succeeds <laughs> everywhere she goes. She becomes a successful advocate, a school board member. She gets elected to the legislature. I think even the county government at some point. She's on the Multnomah County Commission for a while. Right? I think she's on a community college board. She gets elected, I think, Democratic leader in the state house. Then she becomes secretary of state. And then, you know, she- her First county... Democratic secretary of state in decades remarkable political arc of her story. She becomes governor, she breaks the glass ceiling in Oregon, and on the very same night, (laughs) she is basically told what the next four years will entail because Measure 5 has passed. And I think she understands the gravity of this, I I think. Yes. Yeah, I think she saw that as a a big challenge right away. I mean, she tried to do this gigantic... Conversation with Oregon, is that what you're... Yeah, yeah, you know, she basically to, you know, to come up with replacement revenue and she ends up not getting her plan through the legislature. It dies in a special session and and eventually actually <laughs> a sales tax measure does go to the ballot during her time as governor, but it gets clobbered like the other sales tax ballots. You know, one of the ironies is that Larry Campbell, who was speaker after measure 5 passed, he proposed that instead of Measure five, taking the property tax rate down to a limit of, I want to say, $15 per thousand. He proposed not to go down as far. I think have it cap it at like $20 per thousand. In other words, provide more money for schools Mm. and reduce the size of the tax cut. Because remember, Measure five was phased in over a five-year period. And everybody said, oh, my God, no, you can't do that. Certainly, at least on the Democratic side. You know, we need to replace all of this revenue and 
in the end, they probably would have been better off if they had taken Campbell's alternative, which mm. is an interesting thing. I mean, in part, Measure 5 initially, at the same time in the 90s that she was governor, the economy was getting better and better. You know, by the end of the 90s, remember, it was so good that the the U.S. actually was running a, a balanced budget. You know, the federal government, remember, Clinton had, had achieved that. And the... Uh, they would have been, they really would have been, so that helped ameliorate some of the shortfalls, at least in the short term. So, uh, you know, I think they would have actually been better off if they'd taken Campbell's alternative, but, you know, those fights continued through the nineties. You know, there were, there was another ballot measure by Bill Sizemore to cap assessments, not just the property tax rates. And so, you know, it was is a very fraught time in terms of taxes. Well, and both of the so measure five property taxes, you know, we're in 2023. We're like 30 years after this and still a major topic. And even when it's not ex- expressly discussed as a measure five property tax issue, the consequences of the ballot measure sort of inform the framework of the legislature. It has created the dynamic within which we operate. So obviously lasting impact there. Spotted Owl, the uh, moment in this podcast history where we have had the most press and the most downloads getting you know, <laughs> national publications was when candidate for Congress, Carrick Flynn, came on the podcast and made a comment about the Spotted Owl, an issue that, again, origin story is back in 1989. So mm-hmm. obviously 1990, hugely impactful from those two perspectives. My last question on this before we transition to some more contemporary stuff is, you know, Barbara Roberts was a four-year governor. She chooses not to run for re-election. She's pushed out by Kitzhopper specifically. In her autobiography, she tells the story of sort of how this happened and Kitzhopper walks into her office. Kitzhopper, I think, disagrees with that story, or at least there's press reports at the time that he disagrees with that version of events. But there's no doubt his pressure played a big role in her deciding not to run for re-election. Yes, that and I think her husband, Frank, had was hugely impactful in her life, um, was a senator before she was elected to the legislature. He passes away. And so she's dealing with some really challenging personal, personal yes. circumstances, too. It's been several decades since Barbara Roberts was in office. She, I think, is looked at very fondly by Oregonians today. Um, she's a frequent endorser of candidates. Um, one of the highlights of my experience running for office was getting to meet her and kind of go through that process. Did you As get a, an endorsement? I did get an endorsement and and <laughs> put her picture uh, and and her quote in the voters pamphlet and all that stuff. So, but from a more sort of political scientist or journalist perspective, how do you think about those four years of Barbara Roberts' governorship in terms of legacy impact, why it matters, what it tells us about you know the Oregon story? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in many ways, you could argue that it was the start of a more liberal democratic uh, leadership in Oregon. I mean, certainly there were a lot of people who followed her arn and were influenced by her example. Kate Brown and Tina Kotek, to some degree, certainly come out of her tradition. Although, interestingly, Barbara Roberts did not endorse Tina Kotek. Tina Kotek, yeah. Yeah, in the, the primary. So I think in that way, you know, certainly in the sense that she put an emphasis on social services, housing, you know, those issues were important to her. But I have to say, in the end, I think it was a very difficult and frustrating 
four years for, you know, the timber industry led recall efforts against her. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was, it was a struggle the full time. And I think one of the things that <laughs> it was one of the lessons from her is that John Kitzhaber was very deliberate about making sure that he kept strong support within the timber industry, you know, and, mm -hmm. and he, because of his roots in Roseburg, I mean, he knew a lot of the big players in the timber industry and he made sure to kind of keep them embraced behind him. And, and that's actually something that governors continue to do to this day is, you know, certainly the democratic governors are seen as much more friendly to the environmental community, certainly much more than Republican candidates for, for governor have been. But at the same time, for the most part, they've also been careful to work with, you know, several of the big players in the timber industry. You think of some of the agreements they've reached to sort of tamp down tensions on how the Board of Forestry operates and what kind of ballot measures are going to be placed before voters. Yeah, they always put in the work. You've seen those different agreements and they're a little, I'm not as strong on forest policy as others, but you always see as those fights bubble up, the governors always get involved and have for the most part, as you said, successfully brokered deals. My one thought before I ask you the next question is also that you talk about that set of progressive governors, even Kitzhopper, who I think is at this point, I would say even by Republicans, is going to be remembered as a moderate governor. He spent his first eight years in office vetoing like Dr. all no. the stuff Republicans sent at him. Dr. No, right? And so even then, you could see where the oppositionalism between them and the Republicans, while maybe not, not out of the question for other Democratic governors, it really did, as you said, become more, you know, a bit of a more liberal bent for the Democrats at that point. Kitzhaber found himself surprised by the Republicans that he couldn't deal better with them. You know, when he had been Senate president, he mm -hmm. had pretty good relationships with a lot of the Republican legislators who are more middle of the road. Certainly Nancy Riles, Jeanette Hamby, probably names that doesn't mean anything to anybody these Not days. I. John Brenneman. And he was kind of shocked by some of the more hardline Republicans who were in the legislature who had defeated some of those candidates that I had mentioned in primaries. And, you know, kind of the high watermark for the Republicans in the legislature, there was a period in the sometime in the 1990s, I can't remember where it was, that they had every single legislative seat in Washington County. Mm -hmm. Imagine mm -hmm. that. Uh, one, <laughs> Unheard of today. Yeah. Uh, one of them, Tom Bryan, had shifted from Democrat to Republican. To Republican. And I think that when yeah. he did that, it became an all Republican delegation. And then you know, when the Democrats started coming back in the 2000s, they were just picking those people off one by one. I, it actually started in the late 1990s. And part of it was that the Republicans that had won those primary contests, they were too far to the right for Washington County. Well, I think, yeah. I think 2012, I was thinking about this when you were speak, talking about this earlier. 2012 is the last time there were Republican legislators from Hillsborough. There were two legislators from Hillsborough. Yeah. And there were two Republican legislators from East Multnomah County, and they both lost. And there has not been a. They came very close a couple times, like the, in this most recent election in East County. I think it was four points, Reagan, five points in a couple of those races, maybe less. There are um, some that were less. That continues to be a battleground area. There was a short period where it really wasn't, or at least that we thought it was, but there weren't as many contested elections. 
I think for various reasons, but it, it's returned to being a, as Trump picked up, or as let's say the Republican Party during the Trump years picked up a little bit more of the working class vote. I think that put East Multnomah County back in play just for Republicans. But similarly, as a more suburban community, Hillsborough feels farther out of reach. Like oh, a, yeah. lot, a lot of money was spent trying to defeat Janine Solman in that Senate seat, thinking it was a swing seat. And I, I think she got out raised and outspent like four or five to one with over a million dollars against her. And she won by 10 points or something, mm -hmm. something large like that. So anyway. yeah, and even, you know, you look at Christine Drazen coming, you know, one of the rare Republicans coming from a, at least partially suburban, suburban. seat, you know, that she didn't do better in the suburbs in the gubernatorial election. That tells you something. I believe she won Clackamas County, but not by that much. And she got clobbered in Washington, Washington. County. I mean, Washington County, mm -hmm. you know, their population has grown so much. I mean, it's just a, a fascinating county to me. And I mean, it definitely shifted in demographics, which hasn't helped the Republicans. I mean, that was it wasn't just the change in the Republican Party it's also the change in Washington happened at the same time. And eventually that was going to swap. And Jeff, you mentioned because I have my spreadsheet up, I went back and looked. So the second term of Kitzhopper especially was quite a struggle because that 94 election happens where he wins uh, because his opponent is Bill Sizemore, but nationally but Republicans. 98 was oh, I'm sorry. You're right. No. So the one previous, I'm sorry. Let me pull mine up. So his first term, he gets Denny elected Smith. in 94 in and against Denny Smith, and he wins by almost 10 points. But the Republicans just clean up in the legislature. They have 19 senators, which wow. is a number we haven't reached. And we even got to 20 in 98. And so he just, he has a real struggle in terms of, I think there were even some times where the legislature overrode vetoes of his on occasion, they were able to do that if they were able to marshal and he actually some democratic cut some support. Deals. He actually cut some he deals did. on, he on did. FERS, on uh, teacher issues. Mm -hmm. You know, there actually was a little more deal making. I mean, a lot of those vetoes were message bills. Yeah. Um, and Republicans are running kind of the national agenda on like school choice and government spending and some on social. Although I don't think that except for the 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 fight about marriage, I don't know that there was a lot of push that actually made it through from Republicans on the social issues. There weren't very many bills that were ever voted on in those, partly because of the suburban and Portland area Republicans who didn't were either pro-choice or just didn't want the complicated issues. So. Right. All right, we're over time, so I want to wrap with our last question. So let's see, about 10 minutes ago, you said the word land, which is a great transition into what we're going to talk about, which is land use. Uh, see what I did there, Ben? Talented podcast host, Reggie yeah, Cano, absolutely. making the hard transition. So you did a, a podcast, I think it's called Growing Oregon, and you did a, just a series. And it was funny because I, I had dealt with you a lot as I'm my career was kind of getting going in politics as you were kind of wrapping up your day-to-day -day journalism. And then you disappeared for a little bit. I didn't see anything from Jeff Mabes. I didn't see any stories. And then you popped back up and you were working on this podcast. What was it like making the podcast and what drew you to this issue as kind of being your last piece of major journalism in Oregon? Yeah. You know, it was funny because I always uh, had an interest in land use issues and you can't cover politics in Oregon without coming a, across them, you know, I was getting to the point around 2020 where it's like, okay, I've, it's time to let another generation do daily coverage. I mean, it's hard work, very, very rewarding. I had a great career. I don't have any regrets. Well, maybe a few, but, but I, I did want to continue in some fashion, you know, I was interested in doing some sort of longer form project and I was very inspired 
by our Timber Wars podcast that went through the whole Spotted Owl yep. issue. Mm-hmm. You uh, caught that on OPB and very, I thought, very successful and got a lot of national attention, I think, more than Growing Oregon did. But when I thought of that, I was so thought it so much seemed to me, you know, we could do the same thing with Oregon's land use system, that that you can use this medium to explain a complicated issue in a way that's educational, but also interesting and get some of the, the human drama out. And you know, a lot of podcasts are very historical. Heck, as this one has been, and and I think there is a uh, a market for that. And it turned out to be one of the harder things I've done in journalism. It took me longer than I thought. Well, I, you know, I had to learn unlearn a lot of habits over fifty years. I had to stop talking like a journalist and start talking more like a person. It it was very much a very performative. I mean, it it's the closest I've ever felt to being in a scripted show in Hollywood yeah. where, no, yeah. you know, they're saying, oh, dial up the emotion here. You know, dial- what, what? <laughs> sound happy there. You should sound angry, sad. You know? <laughs> and, you know, let's do that takeover again, you know? And uh, I mean, it was voice work, not obviously acting in the full sense of it, but it felt we actually did table reads, you know, where I wow. come in with a script and rough out the, you know, I'd have various cuts of you know actualities of people talking and then a group of editors and reporters would just rip the hell out of me and uh, <laughs> i go away feeling miserable and then come back and try again did you ever pull a card and say listen i'm the dean of the oregon state capital press corps and you will not be editing my work <laughs> <laughs> and then they'd say fine you will not be doing this podcast <laughs> <laughs> No, I, you know, you don't want to do something bad. And I, you know, I've, 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 I've listened to, how do I do this diplomatically? I've listened to some podcasts that have big aims, but aren't carefully edited, carefully written. And boy, do they flop, you know, it's a, it's a medium when you flop, you do it big. So or and maybe then remind me to talk to you about my script for this episode. I didn't love it. So if you could work on that, I'd, I'd appreciate yeah. it. Well, this is you. a different thing because here we're just having a conversation. Oh yeah. But, you know, where you're having a, in essence, it's really an audio documentary. That's right. And, mm-hmm. and it's a very different thing. But it was a, a great experience. And I feel like when I watch something on Netflix now, I understand much more what they're going through, you know? So, well, we, we will link to the to the podcast episode. It was an excellent podcast. It was very well done. But what I'm kind of, my last question before we wrap here is, and I don't even know if you probably you probably could see this coming a little bit at the time when you're designing this podcast, but land use is front and center again in Oregon politics in a way that probably more than it's been in 10 years. I think there's a land use thing 10 years ago that was pretty big, but now it's like semiconductors land use was super hot and housing land use is super hot. So having done the podcast, I'm kind of curious how you reflect on the dialogue debate conversation that's happening today. I have a couple of thoughts. One, I sure saw the housing side coming. You know, I didn't know how big the semiconductor side of it would be, although certainly while I was working on it, the Intel announcement that they were going to locate in Ohio, although that didn't surprise me. I mean, Intel was not going to put a lot more eggs in Oregon's basket. I mean, I think there was a lot there that goes way beyond land use. But yes, housing is a big issue. And, you know, 
other state, uh, East Coast, West Coast states, we've had this huge housing production problem, and those states don't have Oregon's land use policies. So there may be some impact because of land use, but Oregon's land use policies also provide some opportunities to increase housing production. And frankly, part of it is the way the system is structured is to allow more density in a lot of cases. And we've done that. If, if you've spent any time in Portland or if you've spent any time in Bend, you can see you know, the kind of increasing density that has gone on there. That said, I knew there was going to be a lot of pressure to go outside the urban growth boundary, at least in part, to get more housing. You're not going to get cheap housing out there necessarily, but I think the question is if you can at least get well-designed communities, then expanding the boundary in certain cases, it's not necessarily a bad thing. The line was never supposed to be rigid, and, and it really comes down to what kind of development if you're, you're going to allow. If you're going to allow, you know, two acre rural lots on these lands, then you're not going to do much for anybody except for a few wealthy homeowners and, you know, developers. So, I mean, and really the same is true on the manufacturing side. The devil's going to be in the details. If, I mean, Oregon has a lot of chips, pardon the pun, in having a successful, you know, mm-hmm. chip industry, right? I mean, we've really depended on that heavily. That's a big part of our economy. And so I can understand why Oregon politicians of both sides want to protect that industry and help it continue to thrive. And if, once again, if that means that they're going to have to encroach some on farmland or other areas, then I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. Once again, the devil is in the details. Well, and OPB had a podcast episode about this, and they're talking <gasps> about land in Hillsboro that is sort of surrounded on on most sides by development that's already related to semiconductor. <laughs> and I don't think it's any secret, and certainly I'm not in any rooms where the secret information is distributed, even though I'd like to be in the room where it happens, as it is said in the Hamilton. I'm a Republican, so I'm usually not. But to me, the power that the governor has been given to do supersiding, everyone's very scared of. And they say, oh, you know, it's going around the land use system. It's pretty clear to me that was designed to make it possible for Hillsborough to become a semiconductor fab. And the real question and the, the reason I think people didn't want to do it in the legislature is, one, it'd be more controversial. And everyone have to vote on that as opposed to voting to give vague powers. And the second reason is because if you do it in statute, you have to repeal it if it doesn't happen. Whereas if the project falls through, the governor just doesn't cite that land. It reverts back to its previous status, right? So I can see why you'd kind of put that in legislation. And then the opposition was mostly, I think, not as much about the land in Hillsborough as the precedent it sets. And yes. will the governor ask for executive authority for housing? And and I think that if that conversation comes up, it'll be much more heated. If you thought the semiconductor conversation on land was heated. You ain't seen nothing yet because that conversation will be much more intense in terms of land use and what the future is for. Is the system set up to get enough housing to get back to where people want to be in terms of what the prices are, what's the availability? And then the debate about whether more housing actually solves a homelessness crisis or not. I think there's a debate on that. You know, the polling shows Oregonians are kind of split on the main drivers of homelessness. Is it housing supply or is it drugs and or poverty or crime or any of these other things, mental health issues? 
And the truth is probably it's a combination of those that people become homeless for different reasons. But it's going to be a big debate over the next, I think, six years or so while the governor is kind of I mean, Governor Kotek is a governor that was elected on a platform primarily of housing and homelessness. And so solving that problem, I think this is where the rub comes in. The solving that problem is going to be her goal to have a basically it's the marker she set down to have a successful governorship. And if she doesn't solve it, it'll be part of the debate about whether she gets reelected. Yeah, absolutely. The the case on that. And, you know, I, I just think that one thing people have to remember going back historically again is uh, when the legislature did a big prison building program at the, I think, at the end of the 80s and into the 90s, they exempted those from land use controls. Oh, and, interesting. Yeah, the governor could do super siting then. Um, so there's been examples of that. The abandoned you know, the famous Bandon Dunes golf mm-hmm. courses, they were, this wasn't a gubernatorial or a legislative action, but they basically won an exception from land use law to develop huh. that, those golf courses. So occasionally that sort of thing does happen. And, you know, it's, the land use system is a interesting sort of, you know, public, you know, kind of an agreement that they have with the public on that. And, in the sense that people, I think, really appreciate Oregon's natural beauty. They want us to grow efficiently, not to have the kind of sprawling, junky development that you see in a lot of states. But you got to make the case on that, you know, and it doesn't mean that you give up having affordable housing or you surrender a major economic driver for the state. And, you know, those are tough things. And I think in the end, the question will be, I think, supporters of the land use system, the real activists, they have to keep pressing the governor, justify yourself, justify yourself, justify yourself. And, you know, that's their the big part of what they have to do now. Hmm. Well, Jeff, you've been incredibly generous with your time. We wanted to say thank you for joining the podcast. And as someone who has been literally reading your writing since I was an intern on the John Kitzhaber campaign in 2010, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you for all you've contributed to Oregon journalism uh, throughout the course of a a very storied career in Oregon politics. It really is awesome that we got to talk to you and uh, we wish you a very happy retirement and hopefully you'll still write a little bit or maybe do another podcast. There you go. All right. We'll call anytime. It was great to talk to you too. Take care of yourselves. Thanks, Jeff.